Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and each and every week on the show, we bring you a particular theme, right? Well, this time around, we'll bring you a particular neighborhood, a D.C. neighborhood that spans two quadrants, southeast and northeast, and it just happens to be the workplace of 535 of the most important elected officials in the nation. It's Capitol Hill. And if you've been listening to the Kojo Nambi show this week, then you know he and his team have been all about Capitol Hill. It's part of a collaboration with Roll Call and the Folger Shakespeare Library. And we're picking up the baton today, only we're not looking at Capitol Hill so much from a political perspective, but a more everyday one, bringing you an hour of stories about what life is like in a place that just happens to be American politics central. And we'll start today's show with a look at the Capitol Hill that might have been... For instance, did you know that at one point there was talk of replacing a long stretch of the neighborhood with a second national mall? The whole area from the Capitol all the way to the river between Constitution Avenue and Independence was going to be plowed down and it was going to be the Mall East. Lisa Dale-Jones is president of the Capitol Hill Restoration Society, the group that helped put a stop to this proposed East Mall plan. We're standing on 5th and East Capitol, not too far from where the East Mall would have been. None of this, none of these homes, none of these churches, this whole neighborhood would have been gone. The Capitol Hill Restoration Society celebrates its 60th anniversary this year. And over the past six decades, it's had its share of successes, like its win over the East Mall plan but it's also had its share of losses. Joining me and Lisa is longtime member Hazel Kreinheater. I've lived in my house on Capitol Hill near Lincoln Park since 1963. And in the 1970s, Hazel had quite the showdown just across the street from where we're standing now. On the northeast corner of 5th and East Capitol, there was this grand Italianate building that had, quite frankly, seen better days. The paint was peeling, the shutters were hanging off, but on its first floor was a neighborhood eatery called Mary's Blue Room. And it came to pass that Mary's Blue Room became slated for demolition. I'll let Hazel take the story from here. Not only was Mary's Blue Room, but there were two other houses to the east of it. It wasn't just one building that were going to be demolished by a church that was at 6th and A Streets Northeast. They needed more parking space because we had reached a stage in our lives where a lot of the people attending churches on Capitol Hill no longer resided on Capitol Hill. They had moved out for one reason or another. They moved out because of Brown Board of Education, uh, the riots in 68. So we had, there were very few people that actually lived on the hill that went to that church. So they needed a place to park when they came in. They decided they needed parking. So they decided they were going to demolish these several houses facing East Capitol Street. And the neighbors came, and we protested very quietly, mostly on Sundays when the, the congregation was here and we walked around the block with our children and a lot of a lot of the people that protested were either people who lived right close by or were interested in preservation and one morning very early in the morning we got a phone call and they said they were bulldozers here and they were going to tear down the property so my husband and I braced down, got dressed, came down. It was dark. It was about 6.30 in the morning when we got here, and there were a few people standing around. What are we going to do? And the bulldozer was there, and they'd already knocked down some things. My husband said to me, well, he said, if I get arrested, I will lose my job, but you can stand in front of the bulldozer. (laughs) So Phil Ridgely, who lived over on 4th Street here, and of course was closer, lived closer, 
took me by the hand, and the two of us climbed up in front of the bulldozer and stood in front of the bulldozer. And when the driver of the bulldozer saw us, he wasn't about to <laughs> run us down. <laughs> so we were kind of up on a mound, of, standing up on a mound. And we, it seemed to me we stood there for about a half an hour. And then someone realized that there had been no permit issued to disconnect the gas lines. So that brought that to a halt. That was like on a Thursday or Friday. By Monday morning, they had gotten their permit, and down the buildings came. Tell me more about some of the successes of the Capitol Hill Restoration Society. Is it true that you stopped a highway from coming in and bisecting the neighborhood? They wanted to build an east leg of the freeway between 10th and 11th Streets. And it would have taken out a number of old houses. There, there would have been a number of old frame houses along that route, probably most of which are gone now. But it would have also taken out what is today's famous Philadelphia Row, or it would have impacted Philadelphia Row. It might have been right in their front yard if it had come out. And Philadelphia Road was built in 1862. At the time when it was built, there was a hospital out at Lincoln Park. So they were, old, they were fairly old, all one group of buildings. And Peter Glickert who was a friend of ours, was very much involved, opposing it. And I told this story the other day about Peter getting arrested for hanging somebody in effigy. Now, back then, we didn't have the type of government the district has today. They had a commissioner form of government. We had three commissioners, and Peter hung the engineering commissioner in effigy, and he got arrested. And the reason he was arrested is because illegal to, it was then illegal to hang anybody in effigy in the District of Columbia. One other thing that I think would be interesting for you to know about CHRS, when part of Capitol Hill became a historic district in the mid-70s, up to that point, in the District of Columbia, there was no actual protection for buildings that had been designated historic properties. And so we were actually the ones who got the District Historic Preservation Act enacted so that not only was the area called a historic district, but it was actually protected by law. So it's because of CHRS and the Capitol Hill Historic District that we have D.C.'s Historic Preservation Act, which included the founding of the Historic Preservation Review Board, the mayor's agent, that whole process is because of, the, in the mid-70s, CHRS applying for this area to become a historic district. It didn't exist before. Because from what I understand, Mary's Blue Room was indeed designated historic, but it got knocked down anyway. It had been surveyed, but there was nothing to protect it. There was no legislation, and as Lisa said, it was because of Capitol Hill being nominated that the legislation went forward. And once we were on the National Register, we we had the, the federal protection. That was Hazel Kreinheater and Lisa Dale Jones of the Capitol Hill Restoration Society, which is celebrating its 60th anniversary this year. And by the way, one other battle CHRS won, the metro station at 7th Street and Pennsylvania Avenue Southeast, was originally going to be named after the nearby Washington Marine Barracks. The society lobbied to have the name changed to Eastern Market. And we have a special interview all about the market with tour guide, author, and Capitol Hill resident Robert Pohl on our website, metroconnection.org. We'll turn now from preserving Capitol Hill's past to preparing for its future, a future that's sure to include plenty of strollers, 
toddlers, and nannies. The Hill has seen a big influx of families in recent years, and this demographic shift is changing the fabric of the neighborhood. Emily Berman brings us this story on why Capitol Hill has become one of the city's hottest neighborhoods to raise a family. In the North Hall of Eastern Market, 175 toddlers have gathered around a woman and her guitar. The show is part of a regular concert series organized by Boogie Babes, one of several Capitol Hill businesses catering to the stroller set. And as the kids bop their bodies to the childhood classics, they're under the watch of a few moms and a whole lot of nannies, or mannies in some cases. The name's Jay Keegan, and I've um, lived on the Hill for about 20 years. I've been nannying for just over a year now. The Hill, he says, used to be the place you left when you were ready to start a family. You'd see people walking their dogs, and then you'd occasionally see somebody pregnant, and then you wouldn't see them anymore. You never saw the baby carriages. But about 10 years ago, that changed. And then you noticed families staying. (laughs) And that was the true sign that the Hill had arrived. Just on the street from Eastern Market, there are a dozen women doing postnatal Pilates. The moms alternate between leg lifts and popping in pacifiers. Jen Mueller founded the studio, called Breathing Space, in January of this year. There are so many new families on Capitol Hill that there is a very strong demand for things to do with your infants and things to do with your toddlers. Mueller has taught family yoga classes on the Hill since her daughter was born seven years ago. Every year, she taught more and more classes. And I began offering classes on the weekends. And so after we built up enough of a following, enough interest, it made more sense for us to create our own space. Now that Mueller has her own studio, she's planning a lot of classes for new parents, from prenatal yoga to childbirth education and breastfeeding support groups. Until now, she says, moms on the Hill had to go across town for these services. Why not offer them in the neighborhood? And when you say moms on the hill, we are talking about moms, but we're also talking about an actual organized group. It's a listserv of moms and dads that goes by the acronym MOTH. And with more than 6,000 members, it is by far the largest and most organized community of moms in the city. The power of the MOTH is real and is strong. Sarah Sisna, a MOTH, is holding her five-month-old Ellie. Once a week, Cisna gets together with moms who all had babies around the same time. This time, Sarah's hosting at her house. The group met through Moth, which Cisna explains is a platform for all manner of discussions. There was a big thread on there recently about a certain pizza company and their lack of reliability on delivery. But the posts are not always negative, says fellow Moth Jill Verrett. One of the coffee shops near here was having some trouble, I think, maybe like a year or so ago, and a bunch of people posted, like, please go, okay, it was, yeah, go, and and it stayed in business. So, I mean, I imagine that did drum up business for them. On any given day, there is a staggering amount of emails zipping through the moth listserv. One mom is looking for boys' ice skates, size 5. Another wants to know where to buy really good bagels. And there's a stay-at-home dad asking if any other dads want to meet up. The hive mind of moth is huge, huge. And it's a way of targeting people that, for the most part, are all in the same situation that you are and really in the same place and time. Most of the moms in this coffee group moved to D.C. for work and don't have big support networks, which makes Capitol Hill's neighborliness all the more appealing. Claire Oleksiak explains. 
when we had Owen, all of a sudden our neighbors are showing up with dinner, you know, that first week because they had had a kid and they knew how much that meant, which is really wonderful, especially when you know a family nearby. There's also a lot of support when it comes to making choices about school. Moth organizes an annual school information night, but the discussion continues all year long, both on the streets and online. When people ask a question like, what do you think about this school? You'll get 30 responses that are very detailed that will really, you know, give people's research and opinions and what they've looked into. So you can trust it, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously it's somebody's opinion, but you can trust that they've done the research and they've thought it through too. But that doesn't mean that all parents are comfortable with the options available, especially for public schools. Megan Meyer sits on the couch nursing her six-week-old daughter, Ella, and says that's the one thing about Capitol Hill that worries her. Just there's not really like a long-term vision for schools. At least we don't have it yet here. There's a couple good elementary schools for, for the city. They're good. But, you know, when is that like transformation going to take place? When are like enough people going to invest here so that you don't have to start thinking, OK, well, we bought here, but in five years we need to move to Arlington once they're old enough to go to elementary school. Meyer says she's optimistic that by the time her daughter is in middle school, the public options will be better. After all, Ella's only six weeks old. I'm Emily Berman. Wondering who's allowed to join the Moms on the Hill listserv? We have the scoop from founder Jen DeMeo on our website, metroconnection.org. After the break, the relationship between Capitol Hill and the river that once defined it. Capitol Hill, like uh, many places, it just turned its back on the river. That and more is coming your way on our Capitol Hill edition of Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection, where today we're bringing you a show all about Capitol Hill, the people, the places, and the history of Washington, D.C.'s largest neighborhood. In just a bit, we'll look at the relationship between happenings on the Hill and pollution in the Anacostia River. First, though, we'll focus on the fate of an area close to but cut off from that river. If you head east from the U.S. Capitol building on East Capitol Street, you'll pass blocks of traditional row houses, Lincoln Park, and the imposing Gothic building that houses Eastern High School. Then you get to the area we'll be looking at next. Martin Ostermule picks up the story from there. The easternmost edge of Capitol Hill is known as Hill East, a modest neighborhood of single-family homes. As East Capitol Street intersects with 19th Street, the neighborhood gives way to a large site that's home to RFK Stadium, the D.C. Armory, and, a little further south, a 67-acre parcel of land known as Reservation 13. So Reservation 13 is kind of is the name of at least the federal res- reservation the federal government gave to this, this land. Uh, it was never part of the LaFont Plan, which everybody knows in terms of the city. This, this area was always kind of set aside. That's Brian Flavin, who has lived in Hilly since 2007 and now serves as one of the area's advisory neighborhood commissioners. We're standing at one of the entrances to the Stadium Armory Metro Station, looking east over Reservation 13 as it slopes down toward the Anacostia River. The most obvious thing that's on Reservation 13 is D.C. General, uh, the old D.C. General Hospital, which closed and has been closed for a while. But uh, since um, around 
Since its closure, and really since around 2007 or so, has served as a temporary emergency family homeless shelter. D.C. General is one of the largest facilities on the site, along with the D.C. Jail. But there are also a number of other old buildings on Reservation 13. Most are unused or abandoned, and they have been for years. It wasn't supposed to be this way. Thirteen years ago, the city completed an ambitious master plan for Reservation 13, one of the biggest remaining parcels of undeveloped land in the city. The master plan envisioned a new neighborhood full of homes, parks, and retail. Even more than that, it would have created a connection between Capitol Hill and the Anacostia River. Here's Charles Allen, who represents Ward 6 on the D.C. Council. There's very few places where we can actually build out an entirely brand new neighborhood, one that is convenient to Metro, one that is right along the Anacostia River, one that is very close and accessible for the other parts of the city. That was the plan, at least. But what's happened since then? Nothing. I mean, in a nutshell, if you want a one-word description, absolutely nothing. That's Francis Campbell, who has lived a block from Reservation 13 for 37 years. He used to work at D.C. General when it was a functioning hospital. But after it closed in 2001 and the master plan was drawn up, he had high hopes for what could come next. It it envisioned a um, water access a community meeting space in the community area, a boathouse, um, a couple of parks, apartment housing, condos, and single-family homes, and retail. But those hopes have since faded, he says. <sighs> to say frustrated? Frustrated would be a polite way of putting it. You know, but like I said, what I, what I feel, you can't put in the paper and you sure can't play on the radio. <laughs> to hear Campbell and others tell it, The reason Reservation 13 never became what was promised to nearby residents is a mix of bad luck and bad leadership. Mayors have come and gone. The Great Recession dried up cash for development, and attention shifted elsewhere. Here's Brian Flavin again. It's clear that this project fell off the priority list. Um, And, you know, I spent a lot of time, a lot of folks in the neighborhood, when Mayor Gray was mayor, trying to get it back on the priority list for the use that the neighborhood wanted and we thought was the best use of the city, not necessarily what other people wanted for the site. Those other uses included a possible training facility for the Washington football team and an Olympic village. Those proposals drew swift opposition from neighbors, and though they never came to pass, Francis Campbell says they cemented his belief that the city's leaders saw Reservation 13 as something other than what the master plan called for. Reservation 13 uh, has been, for lack of a better description, a dumping ground. That includes the homeless shelter at D.C. General, which city officials have long said needs to be closed and replaced with smaller shelters located across the city. The D.C. jail will also have to be replaced. That, says Charles Allen, could take a while. We don't have another place where we're going to put a shelter. We don't have another place that we're going to put those city services. We've got the D.C. jail right next to it. And at some point, we have to replace the the jail. And the city has not come up with a plan for how we go about replacing those services. And those are significant barriers to moving Reservation 13 forward. There is some movement on Reservation 13. Late last year, the D.C. Council approved the development plan for two small parcels on the site, which will bring 350 housing units and 40,000 square feet of retail. Nearby residents are happy that at least something will happen, even if they don't get what was promised in the 13-year-old master plan. Francis Campbell says the years of waiting have made him, as he says, cautiously pessimistic. He simply wants the city to live up to what it promised residents. We've had more community meetings than, we've need, than we need or want or desire about what needs to be done to Reservation 13. It comes down to that, that saying that uh, from the movie where the guy said, just get it done. You know, and that's, that's what I want to say. I just want to get it done. I'm Martin Ostermule.
Now, if you stop and think about Capitol Hill's origins as a neighborhood and what its future may hold, you might want to consider the ebb and flow, both figurative and literal, of the Anacostia River. The neighborhood and the river once had an important and intrinsic connection, but over the past century, that connection has all but disappeared. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson talked with Doug Siglin, director of the Anacostia River Initiative for the Federal City Council, about what can be done to bring the two back together. They met at Congressional Cemetery, where you can almost still see the water. I like to think that the river had sort of uh, two prior personalities, and uh, now we're heading into the third personality. The very first was the historical personality of when you had the wharfs, and the commercial enterprises came in, and the Navy was building ships, and the people who worked at the Navy Yard lived around it. And it was really a centerpiece of Washington uh, early on in the first couple of decades of the 1800s. And if famous people came, uh, they'd come up a ship up the Anacostia, and they'd get off at the wharf at the foot of New Jersey Avenue, and they'd be paraded up to the Capitol building. And it was a big deal back in those days. And then its sort of second personality was nasty. It was polluted with sewage. It was filling in with sediment. Um, Then we had industrial uses, and we had gas and oil depots along it, and the Navy Yard was the largest uh, naval armaments factory in the history of the world during World War II. And so people didn't want to sort of go there. It was still a resource. It was a commercial and industrial resource, but people didn't want to go there. And now I think we're heading into the third era where the river's being cleaned up. We've got a lot of hope that it's actually going to be good for full body contact in 10 or 15 years. And uh, the role that the Navy Yard played in polluting it, they've taken some real steps to try to reverse that. And once we get the toxics out and we get some of the stormwater runoff under control, then the river can be really nice again. So let's get back to uh, the people in that big building, you know, the United States Capitol, and their relationship to this river. Do you feel like that needs to be reestablished in terms of the federal lawmakers' kind of connection to this river that's right next door to where they were? Yeah, I'll tell you a funny story. I I went to see uh, Bill Frist when he was the majority leader of the Senate. And uh, we went into this big fancy conference room and there was a lit fire going on and there were these wonderful chandeliers. And his uh, chief of staff said, well, Senator Frist isn't here yet. Uh, He'll be here in a moment. Let's get started. And so I was saying, okay, on a rainy day like this, the toilets of the Capitol flush right into the sewer system, which then dumps out in the river. And just then we heard this from a room just off the conference room, and Senator Frist came out and said, what, what? And so, so one relationship is that actually the U.S. Capitol and all the offices um, pollute, and uh, hopefully we're going to get that uh, taken care of. I think a second relationship is that um, lawmakers are largely responsible for making the plans that made the river polluted like it is today, not just with their own efforts, but with the policies and the laws that they passed. And I think there are a number of members of Congress, both Democratic and Republican, that understand the potential of the river and what it could mean not only to the Capitol Hill residents, but members of Congress, too. Right now, in terms of your wish list, what more needs to happen with the Anacostia, or do you feel like things are happening and it's just a matter of time? I think there's two sides to that question, Jonathan. I think what needs to happen now divides into what needs to happen for the water and what needs to happen for the land. And so I think things are underway for the water, and within not too long a period of time, we're going to have clean water. But that could be accelerated. When I say not too long a period of time, we don't really know. The district government says 2032. Somebody else says, well, maybe 2035. 
I keep saying I think we could get it done by 2025, so it's a question of accelerating our efforts to get the water clean. But the other side of the story is that we have something that cities around the world would just die for, which is 1,800 acres of public land around the river. The Park Service owns more than 1,200 acres of parkland. The city owns uh, several hundred acres of parkland. And frankly, that parkland is terrible. It hasn't been invested in. It's badly used. And uh, we could have a fantastic waterfront along the Anacostia River. And not a waterfront that's sort of big apartment buildings and big commercial buildings, but a waterfront where people could really go and and feel like they were in New York Central Park, except that you're on a river. And so that you could play in the river. And if the water's clean, then you can have your kids playing in the river. And and I think if we make progress toward making that public land nice, that, that wonderful Riverside Park nice, then more and more people are going to discover it, and then they'll become advocates, and then we'll create some traction. And, and uh, within my lifetime, we're going to end up with a nice park on a nice river. That was Doug Siglin, director of the Anacostia River Initiative for the Federal City Council, speaking with Jonathan Wilson. In the 1850s, many of Washington's deeper lots were subdivided and a bunch of alleys were created all across the city. Those alleys eventually became home to everything from repair shops and creameries to horse stables and houses. In fact, a survey from 1912 shows more than 3,300 alley dwellings in D.C. These days, a little more than 100 of these alley dwellings remain, and half of them are in Capitol Hill. The man we'll meet next lives in one of these alleys and works there as an artist. Lauren Ober recently paid a visit. Will Fleischel's art studio is right off of Barracks Row, but you basically need a map and compass to find it. It's tucked behind the prim houses that make up the neighborhood on a place called Archibald Walk. Here in this alley studio, Fleischel makes all kinds of art, from intaglio engravings to figure drawings. Fleischel is a master engraver at the U.S. Treasury. You can see his work in your wallet. But when he's not working, he's here making stuff in his 1,000-square-foot studio. Or he's at his house on Guestford Court, another one of Capitol Hill's historic alleys. Basically, Fleischel is all about alleys. Describe the part of Capitol Hill that this mm-hmm. is in and sort of where your studio is situated. Archibald Walk is a little U-shaped walk. You can hardly get an automobile back here. So it it really is a pedestrianized area. It has, uh, I guess, eight residences are here, and there's one warehouse on the side. That includes my studio. It's a semi-industrial alley, similar to what, say, Blagden Alley was maybe, you know, 75 years ago. You had warehouses in here. You had a milk distributor that was in here. Actually, this whole neighborhood around here was semi-industrial, going all the way down to the Navy Yard for quite some time. And it's changed. D.C. has changed very quickly. So what was this place? How did it begin its life? Well, this was a, from what I can gather, it was a carriage house. And it started its life probably as like a barn or a storage place for horses and and buggies. Tell me about what this space provides you the opportunity to do. And I mean, this is a unique building, Mm -hmm. and it's a lot of space for you to have to do your work. And I wonder if there are other 
places in town where you would have access to this or whether this feels really unique? Well, I think that there's probably are still some places in D.C. left where you can go and find studio space. And over here, it's like when I bought this place, I paid a song and a dance for this, you know, and, and now it's like ridiculous. But back in 97, D.C. was still hadn't really turned around yet. So it was it was a cheap place to buy. And it was, you know, it was great. I mean, it was perfect for me, close to work. My elderly parents were five blocks away at the time, have since passed away. So you know, everything's here. It's amazing that, like, you were able to find a house here and yeah. then also a studio that's very close to your house and also basically the size of a house. Yeah, it is. And, and it, well, it was ignored and... um my friend who bought the warehouse next to me here, John Giesecke, he bought that place, which is 6,000 square feet. He bought it for like 300 grand, which is now like you can't even find a condominium no. <laughs> for that price. I mean, and people are cringing when they hear that. Yeah, they cringe. And it's just, I don't want to get people upset to tell them how much I paid for the place, but I didn't pay $300,000. That's for sure. But it's a wonderful place. And you know, I can keep my art books here. I can keep my paintings in here and my, my prints and stuff. So the warehouse that is next to you, what is in there? Well, there are. it's subdivided into three sections. John keeps one section to himself. He does a lot of kind of lobby and bar art, and he manufactures his own furniture. He does a lot of stuff kind of autonomously. And he rents out the other two spaces, and there are actually multiple studios. And the, those other two spaces are large enough so that there are multiple artists in each each partition. I think most people, when they hear Capitol Hill, mm-hmm. they naturally think of the government part of it. And mm-hmm. maybe that it's a little stuffy and might be surprised to know that there are artist studios tucked away in these alleys. I mean, yours was not necessarily easy to find. No, it's not. And um, I think that's one of the advantages of it is that it is kind of a little bit of a out-of-the-way place. I like that because there's privacy here. You're right in the middle of a, of a large city, and yet you know this feels like a small town. And I'll leave the door open in the spring, the, the summer, and the autumn, and neighbors will just kind of walk by the door. And people just stop and talk to you. Everybody knows everyone else around here, and it's, it's a very small-town atmosphere. That was Capitol Hill resident, artist, and master engraver Will Fleischel speaking with Metro Connections' Lauren Ober. time now to hand the mic over to you and read from some of your letters. Our recent show about voting rights and statehood for Washington, D.C. prompted a bunch of people to write in, including a listener named Sandy, who says, I am strongly for retrocession of the current district to Maryland. We need the support of a true state government to function properly. Our listener, Anne, had a different response. She thinks D.C. should be its own state. Every other supposed option only offers tokens that are most likely unconstitutional, she writes. And as President William Henry Harrison noted in his inaugural address in 1841, leaves the 660,000-plus residents of D.C. as subjects of the citizens of the states. 
do you think about statehood for D.C. or any other stories we've covered of late? You can reach us at metro at WAMU.org. He was a dreamer. He was a visionary. But more than that, he was a doer. Remembering a man who spent decades making Capitol Hill a great place to call home. It's coming your way as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we are all about Capitol Hill. But not so much the Capitol Hill of political wheeling and dealing. No, we're exploring Capitol Hill as a neighborhood, a two-square-mile community where nearly 35,000 people live, work, play, and eat. Cindy Titches Foster owns Jimmy T's Place, the cozy, cash-only diner that's been cooking up greasy spoon classics at Fifth and East Capitol for more than four decades. But of all the items Cindy has served, two are extra special – the first is a sandwich. Rye on the grill with peanut butter and then crispy bacon on that. And sweet potato fries on the side. The second, a salad. And we could put everything on it. I mean, it had avocados, it had bacon bits, cranberry seeds. The more the merrier. Not that you'll find either dish on the menu. For years, Cindy would whip them up for one customer and one customer only. Steve Simrot. We loved, loved Steve. He would bring his mug in, and we would fix him his tea, and he'd liked his water extra, extra hot, and I was always so worried he was going to burn himself. (laughs) But we would do what he would ask. The 72-year-old Brooklyn native had been living on Capitol Hill nearly half a century when, just before Thanksgiving, he went out to get a newspaper and was hit by a truck on East Capitol Street. A week and a half later, he died. Now, back in the summer of 2013... How are you? Hi, nice to meet you. I had the opportunity to interview Steve and his wife, Nikki. We met across the street from Jimmy T's at Steve's bookshop, Riverby Books. A fire had just ravaged Frager's Hardware, a longtime neighborhood institution, and Steve explained how they were raising money for the displaced staff. And one thing that we kept hearing over and over again from most of the people that we talked to was that's why they live on Capitol Hill. That's the kind of friendliness and activity uh, that makes the community what it is. And as a businessman, family man, activist, and philanthropist, Steve Simrot thrived in that community. In the 1980s, he was the first president of Capitol Hill's Chamber of Commerce, Champs. An original name for it was going to be the Capitol Hill Merchants and Professional Association, but we were afraid that that acronym would become Chumps. This is Steve in a 2010 interview for the Ruth Ann Overbeck Capitol Hill History Project, an oral history initiative he launched through the Capitol Hill Community Foundation, which is something he launched through Champs. With the idea that one way of promoting business uh, was as an organization to be making grants within the community, and there was going to be some percentage of the dues that would go to that foundation. Through the foundation, Steve helped renovate eight local public school libraries. He helped raise nearly $500,000 for vendors after the 2007 Eastern Market Fire, and he helped transform a derelict Civil War hospital into a thriving community hub called the Hill Center. Now, you may notice I keep using the word help 
here. Steve helped renovate this. He helped transform that. He would never say, oh, look what I did. It was always, oh, my God, look at what all these people came together and did. Andrew Lightman is managing editor of The Hill Rag. We met at a bar downstairs from the newspaper's headquarters. He never claimed responsibility for anything. If you asked him about the bookstore, he would talk about Paul. That's his son, his partner at Riverby. If you asked about the library's project, he'd talk about Todd. His son-in-law, the project's manager. In the Hill Center, he'd talk about Nikki. His wife, of course, and current president of the Capitol Hill Community Foundation. They met in the early 1960s when Steve was a law student at Harvard and Nikki was an undergrad at Wellesley. I had a friend who had a date who was coming from Harvard Law School, but this man didn't drive, so he asked Steve if he would come. And Steve did not want to come, and I did not want to go, but we both felt like we had to say yes and be polite about this for our friends. Was it love at first sight? I think we were both intrigued, but I didn't give it too much thought until Steve called back again. And he always told the story that his friend picked up the phone and called me and put him on the phone. So after that, it was love at second sight. The two married in 1967, bought their current home in 68. Then they started their own clothing business. Steve was a salesman, and uh, he was pretty pitiful. (laughs) Next, he dabbled in real estate except that he wasn't very good at that either. He'd come home and say, these people are crazy. These are great buys. I don't understand why they don't buy them. (laughs) So one at a time, we started buying properties. And you still own properties today? We do. We ended up purchasing, renovating, and keeping apartment buildings mainly. And one of their first tenants. I happened to rent this basement efficiency on Constitution Avenue. Was John Franzine, who eventually went from tenant to colleague, working with Steve on the Ruth Ann Overbeck Oral Histories and the Hill Center. Everywhere you look on Capitol Hill today, you see evidence of Steve Simrat's vision and initiative. He showed that ordinary people of goodwill working together really can make a difference. But longtime friend Stephanie Deutsch, who lives right by Riverby Books, says Steve Simrat made a difference on his own, too. I was beginning to do research for a book, which was published a couple of years ago. So I would talk to Steve about books that I was trying to find. And he took great pride in tracking down books and then showing up on my doorstep with some book I'd been looking for. And I'd say, well, how much is it? And he'd say, oh, you know, it was, it was nothing. And that generosity extended to his professional life. Jim Toole owns Capitol Hill Books, the used bookstore next to Eastern Market, just blocks from Steve's shop. I never felt he was a competitor so much as he was a colleague. Whenever I couldn't take certain books or there were some other issues, I always called on him and he would always call on me to go take a look at certain things and see if I was interested in them. Jim was among those who visited Steve at the hospital after the accident. I thought he was going to bounce back, but apparently it was too much of a of damage for him to overcome it. And it was a, a terrible shock because uh, he's such a nice guy. Speaking of which, Cindy Titches Foster remembers how, about 30 years ago, she was having some kind of problem with the building that houses Jimmy T's. I didn't know Steve very well. And one day I walked by my door and there's a little letter on the ground and I pick it up and it was... If there's anything I can do to help you, please let me know. And it was Steve Simrock. And so forever then, I've held him dear in my heart that he would actually take the time to let me know if I needed any help. He would be there. And in a way, he still is. Cindy hasn't added Steve's signature dishes to the menu, but she did 
recently auction off a special Steve Simrat lunch at a community event. The four lucky winners will get a generously tossed salad, a peanut butter and bacon on rye, and a heaping helping of sweet potato fries on the side. Extra, extra hot tea, optional. We spoke with many people for this radio story, too many to include today. But you can listen to some of their remembrances of Steve on our website, metroconnection.org. Right around the time Steve and Nikki Simrot were settling into life on Capitol Hill, Stuart Long was opening a bar there. It's called the Hawk and Dove. You may know the place, just down Pennsylvania Avenue from the U.S. Capitol. Over the years, the bar has served everyone from senators and Supreme Court justices to plumbers and construction workers. Stuart Long recently sat down with our own Hans Anderson to dish about how he's seen the neighborhood expand and change. In 2011, Stuart Long lost the Hawk and Dove. After more than four decades, the Hawk and Dove has lost its lease and will be shutting down. In well, this is it. The final night for one of the most popular hangouts in the Capitol Hill For area. 44 years, the Hawk and Dove was the preferred dive bar of politicos of every stripe. I miss it. I, I, wouldn't, I, don't, I wouldn't lie about that. Long is sitting in a booth at the back of the Tune In. It's also a bar. We're here at 11 a.m. and the Tune In is dark. A bit musty. A few people are drinking bottles of Budweiser. It's right next door to the Hawk and Dove. Tune-in was sort of a rough bar at construction people and stuff like that. And they weren't too much on uh, on college kids. So uh, we used to close a half hour earlier than the tune-in because if both doors emptied at the same time, the tune-in patrons used to beat on my, my yuppie uh, customers at the Hawk and Dove. Long's mother worked in real estate on Capitol Hill. He remembers growing up in the area and riding streetcars down Pennsylvania Avenue in the 1950s. He also remembers when those streetcars stopped and buses came in. Before opening the Hawk and Dove, he wanted to go into medicine. Then decided I didn't really like the looks of gushing blood. And to be honest with you, it was back in the Vietnam War, at the height of the Vietnam War. In other words, he had to avoid the draft somehow. I went to law school. I just went over to the dean at... George Washington and explained to him my situation and told him if he didn't let me in and I came home back in a body bag from Vietnam, he would have that on his conscience his whole life. <laughs> he said, okay, I'll see you Monday. Long got his degree and a job just up the street at the Library of Congress. He didn't like sitting at a desk, though. He saw that a storefront at 329 Pennsylvania Avenue Southeast opened up. He rented it and started the Hawk and Dove. So when I first came up here, you didn't go anywhere past 2nd Street. So even to do the Hawk and Dove in the 300 block of uh, Pennsylvania Avenue was a real stretch. It was, it was a rough neighborhood, but rough from construction people lived up here. And there were a lot of rooming houses up on uh, East Capitol Street. So it was just a different kind of neighborhood. By all accounts, the Hawk and Dove was a bit divey. That being said, Supreme Court Justice William Douglas would come in and have lunch with Long. Then Speaker of the House Tip O'Neill would invite his staffers to the Hawk and Dove on weekends and pick up the tab. 
Blanc eventually owned two pubs on Capitol Hill, and he saw politics play out from behind the bar. During, during the Watergate hearings, Jenkins Hill was my place up the street. That was a real Republican bar. And then the Hawk and Dove was my Democratic bar. So Bella Abzug and all those people were high-fiving and down at the Hawk and Dove. And up at Jenkins Hill, the Republicans just drank and looked straight ahead, didn't say a word. And I told my manager, I said, I think this Watergate is more than these people are saying it is. History would prove long correct. But honestly, he'd rather talk more about the bar than Republicans. That was a beautiful bar. I was up in uh, 223 Pennsylvania Avenue. And uh, it's a little upscale from the Hawk and Dove. Today, Long doesn't have either bar. In the 40-plus years that he ran the Hawk and Dove, he rented the building. In 2011, the owners didn't want to resign his lease. Long had to give it up. I miss being in the saloon business. I would have never got out voluntarily. Um, my daughter didn't talk to me for a long time. She didn't think I fought hard enough to keep it. But when you don't have a lease, you don't really have a lot to bargain with. A new Hawk and Dove is next door doesn't have $2 Bud Lights anymore. Instead, there are chandeliers and pricier pub food. Much of the old Hawk and Dove staff moved to the tune-in. There are little pieces of paper on all the tables with daily specials. The same specials from the old Hawk and Dove. I was able to place my chef, my cooks, my dishwashers, my, the bartender. These people who are working here today are all former Hawk and Dove employees. I have lunch here every day. Most enjoyable. But I'm eating the old Hawk and Dove food, so I'm, I'm used to it. Long now works as a lawyer and refurbishes houses. And he goes to the tune-in. You know, times change, people change, things change. So that's why I'm sitting here in the tune-in. Tune-in never changes. And for now, that's where you'll find him. I'm Hans Anderson. We'll devote our last few minutes of today's show to a longtime Capitol Hill resident we interviewed in 2012, Mary Z. Gray. I was born January 6, 1919, and at that point, everybody just flops over. <laughs> if it had been born in the 1920s, it would be different. But 1919 puts you in all different categories. <laughs> We were talking with Mary about her new book, 301 East Capitol, Tales from the Heart of the Hill. The memoir recounted all sorts of stories about the neighborhood she remembered from her childhood. A lot happened on the streets. For instance, newsboys used to stand on the corner and yell the headlines. Uh, Tom the Huckster, who had a, a cart that was drawn by a horse, and Tom the Huckster used to yell, Strawberries! And he'd kind of sing it, Strawberries! And uh, watermelon, watermelon, fresh off the vine. And people used to run out the front doors. Mary also delighted in the rituals of Congress, even as a young girl. There's always a light on the Capitol Dome at night, but... There's a light that somebody has to turn on manually, and it means that Congress, one or both houses, is in session after dark. And the first thing I learned to say was, now lay me down to sleep, and the second thing was, they're in session. 
and then I would tell the family they were in session. <laughs> and so I got very politically oriented young. Mary's interest in politics would shape her career as a writer. Her pieces first appeared in the Washington Post in 1940, and she was a speechwriter for the Kennedy-Johnson White House. Mary was a dynamic, lively person, one who became a friend in the months and years after our first interview. And so it's with great sadness that we share the news that Mary passed away recently. She was 95 years old. When you realize that you can tell about something that happened almost 100 years ago, and you remember it, that gives me the creeps. (laughs) Mary Z. Gray, quick wit, writer, Capitol Hill native through and through. We were lucky to have known you. If you'd like to hear our 2012 interview with Mary Z. Gray, we have a link on our website, metroconnection.org. Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson, Emily Berman, Martin Ostromule, Lauren Ober, and Hans Anderson. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. That's metroconnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. You can find information about all the music we use at metroconnection.org. While you're there, you can also find a link to our free weekly podcast or check us out on iTunes and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll spice up February with a show about passion. We'll ask local couples to share their tales of true love. We'll meet a self-described granny with a passion for funk music. And we'll talk with a beloved barber facing an uncertain future as we partner up with Elevation DC to debut a new series we're calling Clips. Have you ever come to a place like Inverness? And you definitely leave just like you're doing now, smiling. You know, if it ain't from the corny jokes, you got to be from the beautiful haircuts. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News. <laughs>